When I am preparing my sermons, sometimes I'll listen to or read how other pastors have preached from the text that I'll be preaching to. And this last week, one of the pastors I read said that Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, in these two verses, he asserted, uh, Paul summarizes the entire letter to the Colossians. An interesting thought that you could summarize everything that Paul says in this long letter in just these two verses. And I would say this morning that a, a big question is answered or could be answered with these two verses. And that question is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? You're a Christian. Do you know what it means fundamentally to be a Christian? If you're here and you're not a Christian, are you wondering what it means to be a Christian? Well, one answer to that question, or one, I should say, way of answering that question is to just read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. What is a Christian? What does it mean to live the Christian life? What is the Christian life? Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That is a Christian. So let's look at Christianity today. True Christianity. And before I preach this sermon, let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for another opportunity to listen to the preaching of Your Word. And we pray that Your Word would be helpful to us today. That it would do a work in our hearts and change us from the inside out. We pray for this. We hope for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look back at Colossians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through that was the text I preached on last week. And if you'll remember, Paul describes there his struggle for the Colossians. Paul has a, a degree of anxiety for all the churches that he knows and loves. He knows the people, some of them. He loves the people. He wants what's best for them. He wants them to mature as Christians. And so, when he hears about imminent dangers, when he hears about threats to the health of them or their church spiritually, he worries about it. A good worry. A good anxiety. And so it causes him to struggle for them and to pray for them or to write them a letter. And so he wrote him this letter of Colossians. And when he gets to chapter 2, verses 1-5, through five, he lets the Colossians in on his struggle. This is what I'm struggling over. This is what I'm praying for. I'm hoping and praying that your hearts would be strengthened. Remember, he said, that your hearts would be strengthened, that you would be knit together in love, and, and that as your hearts are encouraged and strengthened, and as you're knit together in love, that that would then help you to reach something. He said assurance. That it would lead to assurance for you, and confidence for you, and Consequently, joy for you. So he wants the Colossians to be joyful. right? If you love somebody, you want them to be joyful. Or in 21st century American language, you want them to be happy. We mean something a lot deeper when we say joy. But it means that we, we want the people we love not to be miserable. We want them to be happy. We want them to be joyful. And Paul wants that for the Colossians. And he knows they're not going to have that unless they're knit together in love, unless their hearts are strengthened and encouraged and filled with truth, unless they have confidence and security. You know what it's like to be insecure? Being insecure is miserable. Feeling secure, whether it's in your own skin or in your family or in your church or in this world or in Christ, leads to joy. So Paul's struggling for that. He wants that for the Colossians. And I believe, based on verse 5, we read last week, I believe that Paul thinks the Colossians are doing well. He believes they're doing well. And so he has joy because he knows they have joy. And he's really saying, keep it up. 
keep going. It's not like his letter to, say, the Galatians or the Corinthians. If you read those letters and you say, Paul, how, how do you feel about the Galatians and the Corinthians? Are they doing well? And Paul says, no. No. The churches in Galatia are not doing well. church at Corinth is not doing well. I wish I had some, he basically says, I wish I had some good things to say about you. I don't. You're in real trouble and you need to, you need to turn it around. There's an anger in his letters. Well, that's not the case here to the Colossians or to the Thessalonians or even the Ephesians really. But here he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he is rejoicing. He's struggling, but he's rejoicing both at the same time. Because he knows there's some dangers, there's some threats, but they're doing well. And he prays that they would continue to do well. And so he writes them this letter so that he told us in verse 4, so they wouldn't be misled. You're doing well. I want you to keep doing well. So I'm writing you this letter so that you keep doing well. There's guys among you, false teachers among you, who are trying to mislead you. Who are trying to steal you from Christ. Who are telling you things that aren't true about God and about the Gospel. And they're adding rules and they're adding traditions and they're helping you craft idols. And so he's saying, I want you to get back. Remember what you heard from me through your pastor, Epaphras. Get back to those basics. Remember the Gospel. Get rid of all this other garbage. And if you do that, he's saying, I'm confident that you're going to do well. You're going to stand firm in the faith. You won't be, depending on your version, Deceived, misled, beguiled, deluded. And that brings us to verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Remember those words. That word, therefore. When you see the word therefore in your Bible, it's like a chain link. And it's linking what you've read before with what you're going to read. It's saying, look back now, there's a ground, a foundation. Look at that, and therefore, based on that now, I've got some instructions for you. It's a big word when you see that in your Bible, and it helps bring everything together. You can't start with therefore. You've got to look back at what was just written, which is why I went through verses 1-5 through five briefly this morning. And then Paul says in this book, therefore, let the imperatives begin, or the commands begin, the instructions begin. Paul's now going to speak primarily practically. Up until this point, it's been primarily principle, and now it's primarily practical. All the way through chapter 4, verse 6. Very practical instruction from Paul. Which is often Paul's pattern when he writes. You look at all of Paul's letters, he often follows this pattern of indicatives followed by imperatives. Indicatives, truth, facts, principles, followed by imperatives, commands, instructions. In other words, his pattern is, okay, this is truth. It always starts there. This is truth. This is how you should think. This is how you should believe. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. This is who you are in Jesus. And now you should live accordingly. So indicatives followed by imperatives. This is truth and this is living out the truth. But Paul never just starts with the living and the doing and the speaking, and the acting. He never just starts the letter with, hey, cut it out, or stop doing that, or start doing this. That always comes later. Because the foundation of that is truth. Belief, then behavior. Remember that, Christian. Belief, then behavior. You see, I became a Christian, my behavior changed. Well, first, your beliefs Changed. You believed something differently. And that pattern is true your entire Christian life. Haven't you experienced that? You have a behavior that you want to change. You have a behavior you want to stop doing. You have a behavior you want to start doing. Is it as simple as just doing it? Some of you think it is. Some of you know it's not. Just stop it. 
Don't do that anymore. Well, if it were that simple, I would have stopped it a long time ago. Well, start doing this. It's that simple. Well, if it were that simple, I would have started doing that a long time ago. That's why a Christian says, okay, if behavior needs to change, what is a fundamental question to ask first? What do I need to believe that I'm not believing? Or what am I believing that I need to stop believing? Where am I off in regards to God's Word? In regards to truth? I need to think differently. I need to believe differently. The behavior will follow. So that is what Paul does here with his therefore. So everything before is this is who Christ is. This is who you are in Christ. And now the rest of his letter is now live accordingly. Right? This is who Jesus is. This is who you are in Christ. You are loved. Live like it. Christian, you are loved. Live like it. You are forgiven. Live like it. You have been cleansed and purified. Live like it. You are empowered. Live like it. You are hopeful. Live like it. So it's getting in our heads the truth that I am forgiven. I am cleansed. I am empowered by the Holy Spirit. I have reason for hope. And as that gets deeper and deeper in your mind and heart, change happens. Therefore, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Or you could say it this way. Because you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Or since you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Walk in Him. Or keep walking in Him. So, step one. We're going to answer this question. What is a Christian? What is the Christian life? Well, we see step one right here. Christian, this was the first step you took. Or if you're not a Christian, this would be the first step that you need to take. Receive Christ Jesus the Lord. That's step one. Receive Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says. Everyone should ask themselves right now, have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? In order to answer that question, we need to know what it means. What does that mean, receive Him? Some kind of package I sign for? What does it mean to receive Christ Jesus as Lord? I'll say a couple things. Well, first of all, it's life transforming. To receive Christ Jesus as Lord, become a Christian, is life transforming. And I'm saying life transforming instead of life changing. I'm trying to use something bigger. Or life revolutionizing. Receiving Christ Jesus the Lord is life revolutionizing, life transforming, not just a change, because that might be too small in, in our minds, but complete 180 degrees dramatically different, dramatically transformed. Understand that's at least what it means to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. So, if you are here this morning and you've done something that you think and have thought is becoming a Christian, you've done something that you've always thought is or was receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, and it hasn't been life-transforming, you probably have not received Christ Jesus the Lord. Whatever that experience was, when you thought you became a Christian, if it wasn't life transforming, then you may not have become a Christian. Because when someone receives Christ Jesus the Lord, it is life transforming. 
Let's keep trying to understand what this means to receive Jesus Christ the Lord. John 1, 12-13, here's the same language used. But to all who did receive Him, there it is again, who believed in His name. So He explains a bit of what it means to receive Him. It means to believe in His name. He gave them the right to become children of God. So they became a Christian. What did they do? They received Jesus. Okay, that's what we're reading in Colossians. Tell us more, John. They believed in His name. So to receive Jesus means to believe something about Jesus Christ. We're narrowing it down, aren't we? Believing in His name. Believing something about Jesus Christ. What do we need to believe about Jesus Christ? Well, for that, we don't even need to go any further than Colossians 2.6. Because Paul is very careful about how he describes and titles who it is we are to receive. Christ Jesus the Lord. Each of those titles is significant and says something about who you're receiving and what you need to believe about Him to receive Him. That's not just His first and last name. Jesus Christ and Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. When Paul says Christ Jesus the Lord, Christ is the word for Messiah. The Savior of God's people. Prophesied about, spoken about, dreamed about for generations. The Messiah who would one day come and rescue God's people. Christ Jesus. What did God through the angels tell Mary to name her son? He told her to name him Jesus. Or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua, which is a a combination name. Two words, Yehovah and Yasha. Yehovah was the Lord and Yasha was saves. So Mary, I want you to name this boy. His earthly name will be the Lord saves. Christ Jesus, receiving Him, the Lord. The Lord. In other words, this Christ Jesus whom you believe on, whom you receive, is God and ruler over all. So to believe in His name, Christ Jesus the Lord, means to believe that He is the Savior, He is your Savior, and He is your Lord, because He's Lord over all creation, all redemption, which Paul has already made clear in chapter 1 of Colossians. So we ask the question again, have you received Christ Jesus as Lord? If so, then we move on to step two. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what's next? So walk in Him. Or keep walking in Him. Belief, believing in His name, to behavior. Now as a Christian, what do I do? We walk in Him. Walking is a metaphor for living. We saw that already in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says to Christians, walk in a manner worthy the calling you have received. It has to do with how you live your life. So your walk is your life. The way you walk is the way that you live. Or Galatians 5, 16 says we are to walk by the Spirit. To live by the Spirit. So we are to walk in Him. Walk in Christ. Think about walking with someone. Think about being with someone. Understanding that He is your Lord, He is your Savior, and He is with you. I'm walking in Christ. So my hope is here. My salvation is here. The one I love is here. The one I aim to please is here. Here, I am walking in Jesus. I am walking with Jesus. And some people get stuck here. Say, I am a Christian, but I don't want to walk in Him. Well, if we're answering the question, what is a Christian in Colossians 2.6, then that is not a Christian. He's my Lord, and so I want to follow Him. I want to walk in Him. I want to 
please Him. Paul has a, a similar desire for the Thessalonians. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now verse 7. Verse 7, all Paul is doing here is describing what a person who is walking in Christ looks like. So what is a Christian? What is the Christian life? Verse 6, therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What does that look like? What does it look like for a Christian to live? Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is a Christian. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, a Christian is rooted in Him. We're rooted in Christ. Here is the image of a tree. You're like a tree. And like a tree, you have roots. If a Christian is a tree, his or who, her roots are in Christ. So Paul creates a picture for us here. Where do your roots go? Where do you draw life from? Who do you need in order to survive? It's where we sort out the idols and Jesus in our life. Our roots can go other places. I need this. I have to have this. Well, you don't know. You don't need anything but Jesus. You don't have to have anything but Jesus. You'd like these things and you'll have some of these things and God will use these things and thank Him. And... But God supplies all your needs according to His riches in Jesus. So for the Christian, where do the roots go? The roots go to Jesus. Let's look at a couple Scriptures in the Old Testament because the tree thing didn't just start in the New Testament. God's always been comparing us to trees. How about Psalm chapter 1? If you have your Bible, turn back. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1. And then if you want, we're, we're going to go next to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. But first, look at Psalm chapter 1. And here we are. We're like trees. Where are our roots? They need to be in Christ. So how about the first three verses of Psalm chapter 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So where are all the trees? The trees are near the water because the trees need water to survive. You ever been out where the land is really flat and, and you look out or maybe you've been on, in a plane looking down and you, you don't see a river maybe, but what do you see? You see trees. Or you look out on the horizon and you don't see a river, but you see a row of trees. Well, what do you know is near those trees or near that green belt? You know there's water. You know there's something for the roots to get into. Christian, you're like a tree planted by streams of water. Who is the water? Christ, according to Colossians 2.7. You're rooted in Him. Or how about Jeremiah 17? Flip forward to Jeremiah after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 17 says the same thing, verses 5 through 8. So, first, you got a bad tree with bad roots, and you got a good tree with good roots. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his struggle, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched 
places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now that's in contrast to verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Who's the stream? Jesus. And does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So Christian, you're supposed to have your roots in Jesus. The streams of living water. And if your roots aren't in Jesus, you may not be a Christian. Or if you're a Christian who's struggling and in despair, what do you know about your roots? They're shriveling up. They're not in Christ. Because when the heat comes... For a Christian whose roots are in Jesus, practically through His Word, through communion with Him, the heat comes. What did verse 7 and 8 say? And that tree's okay. When the heat comes, the tree is okay. It keeps bearing fruit. The leaves are green. You look on the outside, it looks desolate. Scorching. It's 120 degrees outside. How is that tree surviving? What do you know? Its roots must be in water. That Christian's roots must be in Christ. But what does verse 5 say? There's another kind of tree. It's like a shrub. And when the heat comes, what happens to that shrub? You ever seen just tumbleweeds blowing across the freeway? That's what it is to be a person who is not rooted in Christ. You're just enslaved to the heat that comes, to the wind that comes. You're going to shrivel up in the heat. You're going to be blown around by the wind. So we're learning something about a Christian. The Christian is rooted in Christ. Second thing, what is a Christian? A Christian is built up in Christ. Right? Rooted and built up in Him. So here's the image of a building. These are two common images, common metaphors for Christian. Tree and a building. So here the image is a building. You are like a building. You're going down to Jesus' roots. You're going up in Jesus like a building. The key principle here is that Christians grow. Okay, So a building that's being built up, it's growing. A tree that has roots is growing. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-11. through This is a cross-reference for what we're reading today. It just means another Scripture talking about the same thing. Listen and hear the same kinds of words. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We get there. We go. We got trees, buildings, all all used here. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he starts in First Corinthians three, saying, "Hey, look, you're like this field I planted. Someone came and watered it, and now you're growing." And then he moves on to the metaphor of a building. Same thing that he does when he writes to the Colossians here. And what is he saying about a Christian? A Christian grows. Hasn't he said in chapter 1, verse 28, that that's his goal? His ministry's goal is to present these people whom he is ministering to complete or mature or perfect in Christ? He doesn't want you to just come to Christ. He wants you to grow in Christ. What is a Christian? Christians grow. Christians mature. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.15 Rather speaking in the truth, the, the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. 1 Peter 2.2 2, 
like newborn infants, long for spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, why is he comparing us to trees? Because Christians grow. Christians mature. We might ask, how does that happen? How does a Christian grow? How does a Christian mature? I want to grow as a Christian. I want to mature as a Christian. How do I do that? What's the secret? What is the, what is the key? So let's go a little bit further and learn that Christians grow. We know this from reading God's Word. Christians grow in two primary ways. Christians grow and mature by instruction and imitation. Over and over and over again, we see this. That Christians grow. So if you want to grow, and a Christian is growing, you'll grow by and through instruction and imitation. Instruction. Totally important. It's why we gather together every Sunday. And for a portion of our worship service, we're listening to preaching. We want to be instructed. It's why we go to classes. It's why we read the Bible. It's why pastors have to be qualified to teach. It's why parents are supposed to teach their children. It's why teachers are supposed to teach their students. Because we're to teach one another. Because we grow through instruction. And Romans 15.14 says that all of us, every Christian, has been equipped with God's Word so that we can all instruct one another. So we're supposed to be instructing one another, sitting under instruction, sitting into teaching. Some of you have gone through periods of your life where you feel like you weren't growing as a Christian, you weren't maturing as a Christian, and you can trace it back and say, you know, I wasn't really receiving much instruction. I didn't have a lot of good teaching or a lot of good teachers. And you won't grow apart from instruction. Which is why Paul says in verse 7, and established in the faith, When he says faith here, he means in the teaching. Teaching of the Gospel. Just as you were taught. If you're going to grow, if you're going to mature as a Christian, you need to be taught. Charles Spurgeon said, men to be truly one to Christ must be truly one to truth. So to be one to Christ, you need to be one to truth. Become a Christian, you need to be one to truth. Christians grow by instruction. And secondly, Christians grow by imitation. Christians are imitators. People are imitators. We're all imitators. We're all learning how to do things and learning how to live. We're all learning to do that, not just by what someone teaches us or instructs us to do, but by imitating someone who's doing it well. That's why if you want to learn uh, a trade, you're going to start off by being a what? An apprentice. And you're going to follow somebody around. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to follow them around and watch them and ask them questions. So you get the instruction and then you get to imitate what it is that they're doing. Well, Christians are the same way. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, first and foremost. Trying to be like Jesus. Trying to be holy and pure like Him. But as well, those people we know who are godly. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in Me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You've learned some things. You've received some things. You've heard and seen it in me. I do the same thing. And Hebrews 13.7 tells us to remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So who are you imitating? Who do you want to be like? You need to have those people. And it's the way you mature in Christ. By instruction, imitation. So first couple things that Paul is saying about a Christian. They have received Christ Jesus as Lord and so now they're walking in Him. They're living differently. Their life is different. It's distinct. Because Jesus is their Lord. And now he gets more specific about what that looks like. They are rooted in Christ like a tree 
rooted in Christ. They're also like a building. They're being built up in Christ. And finally, third, what does he say? Abounding in thanksgiving. So a Christian has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And a Christian is now walking in Him. They are rooted in Him. They're being built up in Him. They're growing. And so important, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. I asked myself this week, am I abounding in thanksgiving? Are you abounding in thanksgiving? What does that mean? Well, how thankful do you have to be to be abounding in it? That's what we want to know, right? Like, How many times a day do I have to say thank you? Give me something practical. Give me some steps here. If a Christian is abounding in thanksgiving, I know many of you who are Christians, we want to know then how can I abound in thanksgiving? Now, abounding in thanksgiving, let's say a couple things. Abounding in thanksgiving is, is different from just being blessed. So, you can be blessed, and you can be encouraged, and you cannot be abounding in thanksgiving. So, if you're blessed, and all of you are in many ways, if you're encouraged, and all of you are in many ways, but if it stops there with just, I'm blessed and I'm enjoying this, and it doesn't lead to thanksgiving, then you're not abounding in thanksgiving. Now, here's, So here's where the conviction can come for a Christian when we start to stack up and add up the ways that we're blessed, the ways that God is being and has been good to us. Are we thankful? Are we acknowledging to God our thankfulness? I mean, how many of you have experienced this where there's just, there's just clouds over you? Not literally. There's just clouds over you. And sometimes you don't even know why. You just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe, maybe something bad did happen. Maybe the circumstances are terrible. Whatever it is, but you know what that's like. Like wherever you go, the cloud is it's raining and it's just following you. And, and the clouds aren't on anyone else. It just feels like they're on you. And it's so irritating. Because everybody else is just happy and sing-songy and you're just not. It would be frustrating. And then have you experienced this though? Where you, the clouds are over you in that way and then some wind comes along and the clouds are blown away. And the sun is shining. The birds are singing. And, and sometimes you don't even know why. that ever happened to you? I was upset, I was discouraged, and now I'm just, I'm not. I'm not. Maybe some little thing happened. Maybe you got some good news. Maybe someone you love just said something uh, kind or sweet to you or whatever happened, but something small often, and, and it, it just blew the clouds right away. Now here you are, you are encouraged. Now think about how many times that that might happen in your life and how many times do you express gratitude? To God. How often, how quick are you to thank God? To stop. And to remember why something has changed. Why something has clicked. Why you feel differently than you felt an hour ago. Why you're hopeful. Why you're encouraged. Well, the answer to all of those is always God. But how many times do we just stop with being encouraged? with being blessed. And it doesn't necessarily turn to gratitude. John Piper says, gratitude is an essential guardian of the soul. Remember what Paul's aim is here. He doesn't want these people to be deluded and misled into all this false teaching. So what does he want them to be doing? Abounding in thanksgiving. So he's saying, you're less likely to be deceived and misled and believe these false teachers if you are abounding in thanksgiving. So thanksgiving, gratitude is your guardian. 
It's a guardian for your soul. So if you're not Christian, if you're not thankful, if you're not giving thanks, it's like you are fair game for the enemy. You are setting yourself up. Every time right, we do something we shouldn't do, first, we stop doing something we should have been doing. Always. Our sins of commission are preceded by sins of omission. I stop doing what I should be doing and pretty soon I'm doing what I shouldn't be doing. Well, what should I be doing? Abounding in thanksgiving. Are you abounding in thanksgiving? Are you thankful? Would people say that you're thankful? If you're not, you're setting yourself up. You're in a dangerous place. You're giving up this guardian of your soul. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. We'll read this in a few weeks. See how watchfulness and thankfulness are put together here. Watchfulness and thankfulness. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about thanksgiving being a guardian of your soul? Have you ever thought about being watchful and careful and Thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or consider Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So be thankful that your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard. Here's thankfulness and the guarding of your heart combined again. It will guard your heart's and your minds in Christ Jesus. And if we don't do this, Romans 1.21 is what can happen. What Paul is concerned for with the Colossians. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So what happened to those who didn't thank God, who were not abounding in thanksgiving? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Are you abounding in thanksgiving? Let me conclude with two practical applications of how you and I can grow in thankfulness. How can I become a more thankful person? If this this guards my soul, I want my soul to be guarded. If this protects me from being deceived, if this brings joy, I want to be this Christian Paul's describing. How do I become a person who is abounding in thanksgiving? Two things. Number one, real simple. Think differently. Think differently. Belief then behavior. What do you think about? I assume all of you are thinking all the time. Like most of you are thinking about many things at, at the same time. Charles Spurgeon once said, and he was a genius, that he once counted while he was preaching a sermon. Uh, that he was thinking of seven different thoughts at the same time. I can't do that. And I can't stop and think about how I'm doing that and count them while I'm preaching, right? But you're thinking about, about many things. And I wonder how much you and I consider our thought life and consider what we are thinking about. I mean, we're thinking all the time. And what you're thinking and what you're believing is going to lead to what you do. So the, the mind is this war zone, Scripture says. It is a war zone, and we need to think differently. Remember those verses I just read? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you remember the verse right after that, verse 8, it says, whatever is pure, noble, trustworthy, all these good things, what are you supposed to do? Set your mind and heart and what? Think on these things. So examine yourself. Examine your thoughts. Just do this today. What is it you're thinking about? What is going in? What are you processing? Matthew Henry, 
He said this, the way to have the benefit and comfort of God's grace is to be much in giving thanks for it. As he's on the same page as us. He's talking about thanksgiving. And then what does he suggest to do that? We must join thanksgiving to all our improvements and be sensible of the mercy of all our privileges and attainments. What is he saying? Matthew Henry is saying, if you want to be thankful, then you need to be sensible. You need to be thinking about the mercy of all of our privileges and attainments. How much time, Christian, do you think about your privileges and attainments in Christ? I think the key to be abounding in thanksgiving and the key to holiness and the key to joy is largely related to our ability to be thinking about our privileges and attainments in Jesus all the time. So I want to I grow and be the kind of person that whatever I'm thinking about, whatever I'm thinking about, what I've got to do right in front of me, whatever I'm thinking about, I'm also at the same time always thinking about what I have in Christ. Always. So I can give thanks in all circumstances then. This is the key to everything that we're called to do as Christians. Abounding in thanksgiving. So think about it. Think differently. Think about the privileges and attainments we have in Christ. Think differently. Number two, hopefully practically helpful. Talk differently. Talk differently. So think differently and talk differently. What comes out of our mouths? What, what do we talk about? How much of what we say is thanksgiving? How much of it is thankful? This is Paul's remedy in Ephesians 5. This is remedy for the person who has a lot of garbage coming out of their mouth. He says, Here's, you need to replace it with something because things are going to keep coming out of your mouth. So you don't just stop this. You, you replace it with something. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. What do you talk about? I mean, I can put a lot of things in those categories that he lists. Crude joking, filthiness, or perhaps the biggest net, foolish talk. Foolish talk. And what does Paul say to replace it with? Rather, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Think differently. Challenge yourself to think differently and to talk differently. What comes out of my mouth? What is the pattern that I'm setting? What is the tone that I'm setting when I'm with people? Are you someone who sets a good tone or a bad tone? Are you someone who sets a tone that honors God or dishonors God? Are you just the person that is always foolish talk? That you're just the guy that we can count on to make us laugh and make jokes and nothing sincere ever comes out of your mouth? Are you someone who never has anything to be thankful for or grateful for? And Paul says, let thankfulness come out of your mouth. I read a quote from John Piper. How can we guard ourselves against a foul or frivolous mouth? How can we guard ourselves against a mouth that is foul with criticism and bitterness and blaming and defensiveness and disparagement and resentment and complaining and sarcasm and disrespect and ridicule and cynicism? If what you said didn't fit into those first categories, now we've got a lot more. Okay, so how do we guard ourselves against that? And his answer was, how can we guard ourselves against a mouth that is just flippant and trivial and silly and petty? 
The answer to both questions is fill your mouth with thanksgiving. Now, the great thing is when you think about your conversations with other people, you may, you may be in, intimidated. It may be one of the reasons that you're always just doing small talk, that you're, you're never able to get past a superficial conversation is because you feel insecure and you don't feel confident enough and you don't feel like you have anything significant to contribute. And so your tendency is to just either not say anything or just sort of fill the space with foolish or frivolous talk. Well, here's the thing. You don't need to have this massive intelligence. You just need to have humility. The humility to just have thankfulness come out of your mouth. What does that do to a conversation? What does it do the next time you're having a conversation with somebody and one of the first things you say to them without making any sort of joke first? This is what I do. Without anything insincere first, just right out of the gates, looking at someone and saying something like, I thank God for you. Do you have to be really smart to say something like that? No. You have to have a bunch of degrees to say something like that. You have to be real keen and in tune and and so, no, you don't have to be any of those things. You need to be sincere and you need to be humble. Now, what kind of tone is set for that conversation? Talk differently. Talk thankfully. Think thankfully. Talk thankfully. Paul answers the question, what is a Christian? One who has received Christ Jesus as Lord is walking in Him. Paul, what does it mean to be walking in Christ? Well, you're rooted in Jesus. You're being built up in Jesus. So you're growing in Him. And you are abounding in thanksgiving. We should ask ourselves, are we that Christian, rooted in Christ, being built up in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the challenge that you bring us through Paul to be a people who are rooted in you and being built up in you and abounding in thanksgiving. God, if we are unthankful, would you make us more thankful? God, help us to be disciplined in our thoughts, to take control of our thoughts, to think about what we're thinking about. Get us in Your Word more, we pray. Cause us to, to think about our, as Matthew Henry said, our privileges in You, our attainments in You, all that we have because of Your great love for us. And Lord, we pray that that would affect how we talk that we would speak differently to one another. So challenge us, God, by Your Word, through Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.